0: Well, good morning. So good to see you here in the auditorium. Welcome to everyone watching in the venue and at carneyefree.com. My name's Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at this church. Great to be with you today. As has been stated already, if you're a newcomer, we'd love to meet you over at dessert on us after the second hour. And uh, if you're a regular, we'd love for you to come to, to the annual meeting though, this afternoon. But great to be here together today as we continue on the way through the Gospel of John, we have been going as a church through the Gospel of John for the better part of 2021. We had a short series at the beginning of this year, but really throughout this year we've been seeking to center ourselves once again in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've been studying through the Gospel of John Well, we'll continue to do that here today. Before we jump in, I'd like to pray. Would you join me? Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for every person here. Thank you for your love for each and every one of us and your sovereignty over our lives. We thank you for all those watching online at carneefree.com. We thank you, Lord, for everyone in the venue and the fact that we are one church family in this room across these different venues. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us, for the rain last night, for the blessings that you shower down on us every day, for the beautiful children dedicated this morning for these wonderful families. We are thankful. Lord, as has been said already, every good and perfect gift comes from above, and so we worship you today, recognizing that you have given us your most precious word. We ask, God, that you would teach us now from your word as we would seek to apply it to our lives. We avail ourselves to you, Lord. We give ourselves to you, and we ask that you would have your way in us through the power of your word. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Hey, quick question. If you have kids what do you pray for them? Or, if you have parents, what do you pray for them? My guess is, whatever you pray for your kids, that's what you really want for your kids, right? Right? Like, whatever you really pray for your kids, whatever you really desire for your kids, you, you, you just really long for that, and so you give yourself to it in prayer. You think of these wonderful dedications, though, that we just heard. That was parents saying, This is what I long for my kids most. This is what I desire for my kids, such that here on this day, October 24th, 2021, as I dedicate myself and my kids to the Lord, I pray this for them. It's kind of a snapshot that says, This is really important. I really would pray this for my children. I pray for my kids that they would become men of integrity who follow Christ no matter what anyone else does. I pray for my kids that they'd have good friends who would walk in the same direction as them as they seek to follow Christ, and I pray for my kids that they would love God with all they got, and they would, as a result, love all other people really, really well. These are things that I pray for my kids because I really long for these things for my two boys. Okay, we pray for what we desire the most to state the obvious. So it's raised the question, what would God pray for us? What would Jesus pray for us? Jesus would pray for us that which he most desires for us. His kids. Makes sense, Right? He would pray what he desires for us, and fortunately, he's given us such a prayer over in John 17. I'd invite you to open your Bible to that with me now. You'll find the Gospel of John after Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament. If you turn there now and you get to the book of Acts, you've gone just a little bit too far. Go back to the left, and John 17 is the fourth of the four biographies of Jesus. This is one of the small biographies of Jesus that records his life, and we're marching up toward that old rugged cross where Jesus would die, and uh, he gives this beautiful prayer for his disciples and for all those who would believe in him in John chapter 17. We read it in full last week. We're not going to read it in full this week, though I'd encourage you to do so perhaps later on today or before your life group though this week. John 17 is this beautiful high priestly prayer in which Jesus prays three specific requests for his disciples, both his current disciples back then and for us today, and for all those who will believe one day. He prays three prayers along the lines of, I deeply desire all of my disciples to glorify God. Okay, it's that song that we just sang. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. He has no rival. He has no equal. What a powerful name. Amen? Okay, we sing that song. We believe that and we say, I want to exalt God. I want to glorify God. I want to resist the natural tendency to put the spotlight on me. Instead, I want to put the spotlight on the one who made it all, the maker and the redeemer, the one who loves us, who created us. And Jesus prays, in essence, that we would glorify God three different ways in John 17. Let me review just a bit where we went last week. The first one was this. He would ask the Father that we would glorify God by enjoying God, we are invited to enjoy a personal relationship with God both today and for all eternity. Jesus prays that we would know God and we would know him in a personal manner. In fact, that word know that is used in John 17:3, I pray that they would know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word know is intimate language. We talked about this last week. It's the language of friendship. It's even the language of intimacy between a husband and wife. It's the sense that we are invited to a deep personal relationship with God, and that's where the good stuff of life lies. And as we enjoy God, so also we glorify him. As the Westminster Catechism put it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now, second, Jesus prayed this for us, his disciples. He prayed that we would glorify God by shaping our world rather than being shaped by our world. So he prays that we would be in the world but not of the world. And there's many that are in the world and they are shaped by the world all around them. That's not what Jesus prays. He prays that we would be in the world, not of the world. That we would be the salt of the earth, making a difference wherever we are. That we would be the light of the world, making a difference wherever we go. That we would be involved in shaping our little postage stamp of creation that God has entrusted to us as opposed to being shaped by our little postage stamp of creation that is around us. Does that make sense? We are invited to that, and that glorifies God when we do just that. If you need to review that, you can go back to carneyefree.com and listen to last week's message, which is a precursor to this week's message. Jesus' third prayer is this, and this is where we'll be the remainder of today. He prays that we would glorify God by pursuing unity across our diversity. Say that with me. Pursuing... Across... Yeah, that we pursue unity across our diversity and therefore glorify God. Where do you find that? Look at verse 11 with me to start. John 17, 11, Jesus prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. This is the first time he prays that. It goes on in verse 20. As you continue to listen over in verse 20, Jesus continues his prayer for all believers with this. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. It's not just for my immediate disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus is praying that as the word goes out, as the disciples go out and they make more disciples, as they testify to the truthfulness of Christianity, there will be more and more disciples. And my prayer is also for those who will believe in me through their message. Here's the prayer. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, Because you love me before the creation of the world, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. What a request this is of Jesus. In fact, he makes the same request three times in this short passage That same request is in essence that we would glorify God by pursuing unity amidst our diversity. He prays that we all may be one, just as He is one with the Father. Three different times in this short chapter, He prays that we would be unified. It seems kind of kind of redundant, doesn't it? It, It'd be kind of like a parent praying, "God, I pray that you would give my kids good friends." And Father, I'm asking that you would give my kids godly and good friends. And Father, if you didn't hear me the first two times, I'm asking again, would you please give my kids some good friends? Right? Like some of us pray that for our kids. I pray that just like that for my kids because I desire it deeply. And so also Jesus desires this deeply for his church. Why does Jesus pray that we would be one so often? It's right here. It's right in this passage. You look at verse 21. We need only read our Bibles, and we see it right here. He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's the reason. He prays that we would be unified so that the world around us, looking on at the church, would believe that God the Father sent God the Son. What is it that God wants most? What God wants most is that every person who's ever lived, children and adults and everyone across all the world would know Jesus Christ as Lord, isn't that right? That is what God wants most. He wants every knee to bow on heaven On earth, eventually even under the earth, every knee will bow to this, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, he sent his son to die for us, to take away our sins, to bring us into his family, to bring us into a church family that we might be right with God both now and for all of eternity, and that's what he wants most for you. That's what he wants most for your neighborhood. That's what he wants most for your family. That's what he wants most for your workplace. Now, how does that happen? It happens through many different means, but Jesus seems to indicate here that one of the ways that happens, hear me now, is that the church would be one? Do you think of it that way? Like, is that big of a deal? That one of the greatest evidences Of the truthfulness of Christianity is the unity of the church across all of its differences. He prays, Father, I would ask that as you and I are unified and yet the Father and the Son have distinct roles and distinct personalities, right? Basic Trinitarian theology here. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have distinct roles and distinct personalities and yet it's one unified God. You can't get your mind completely around that. That's okay. That is the theology. One unified God, three distinct personalities that are unique, that have different roles. And Jesus' prayer is, Father, as you and I are united, yet distinct, so they will all be distinct. May they also be united that the world may believe. Verse 22 and 23, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. I would underline that in your Bible. They may be brought to complete unity. Then, only then, will the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Again, one of the greatest evidences for the truthfulness of Christianity is when the church serves as a counterculture to the world around us, which is constantly divisive. So you look out the world around us, it's always divisive. And the reason for that is we all have this thing called a sticky, sinful nature. And we all have it, right? Like everyone in this room, everyone who's not in this room, we all have it. And the sticky, sinful nature that we all have does this here's my people. Not my people. Here's my tribe. Not my tribe. And as long as you think of other people like that, you cannot reach out to other people. It's impossible to love people that you think of as the other. You have to change your mindset. As long as you think of other people as the other who are not my people, you will never reach them for Christ. And because of this sinful nature... It's the result of the sinful nature that we have such prideful arrogance across the world. It's because of the sinful nature that we see the greed and the anger and the in-grouping and the out-grouping and everything that you see on the evening news every night. And so, when Christians get together and they say, I'm going to be a countercultural force for good, we are going to be united with one another, when the church gets united, then our neighbors, and our schools, and our classmates, and our co-workers, they say, wow, what is going on over there? What is going on over a Carney E-Free Church that I see? They have this bilingual ministry, Spanish-speaking ministry, there's a lot of different kinds of people over there. And I see they have folks that are single and divorced and single again. And there's folks who have been remarried. They have folks who have gone through um, just really, really painful times. They they have an addiction support group. They must care about people even with addictions. They have a ministry for people with disabilities. Uh, This church seems to care for widows and single moms. And as I look at this church, I see they have upper class and middle class and lower class and every single kind of class. And I look at this church and I see they have white and black and Asian and Hispanic and they all seem to like each other. And I look at this church and I'm like, what? They even have, get this, get this, they even have Republicans and Democrats and independents. Like they have all of those in this church. What is going on in this church? Like they say this statement, every person matters. And it seems like they might actually believe it. What's going on over there? Would you please serve me some of what they're cooking? That's just kind of what happens. That the world may believe that we are one. That the world may believe that God sent Jesus for them. It's unity amidst our diversity, which is only possible because of the trinity which binds us together. And, a glor- and, the- and God gloriously testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel when we all believe that the ground really is level, the foot of the cross. I don't know about you, but I'm willing to fight for that. I, I-, I mean, like, I got to tell you, as, a- as your pastor, I'm willing to die for that. I'm willing to take any number of shots, and I have for that because this is the plea of my my Savior Jesus that the church, the Christians all across the world would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Now, our church is part of a movement of churches called the EFCA, and it's really in many ways more of a movement than it is a denomination, because each of the churches within, within the EFCA are free to govern themselves as they choose to govern themselves. So each one is autonomous, and yet the churches in the EFCA are united in what you would call the essentials of the faith, the main things, what you would call mere Christianity. One of the cornerstones of our movement since its inception way back in 1884, almost 140 years ago goes like this it's this age-old statement that dates all the way back actually the fourth century and many christians have held on to it over the years it goes like this in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things charity would you say this out loud with me both in the auditorium the venue and online let's join together in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things charity this has been a hallmark of our movement of churches since its inception because we've said we, as a movement, are going to major on the majors and minor on the minors. We have that quote in our conference room here at the church so that leaders, as we enter into that conference room, will remember on a regular basis, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. We can disagree agreeably on some things and no matter what, Love, no matter what, charity is over all. You see, the EFCA has chosen over its 140 years not to divide on many secondary theological issues like how you're baptized, or Calvinism and Arminianism, or views of the millennium and the tribulation, or any number of other things. And I recognize you may not know what some of those words are, and that's okay too, Okay, you don't, there won't be a quiz after church today. It's okay if you don't know what those words are. I just share them to say these different constructs that frequently have divided other movements, the EFCA has not been divided over them, we've said, in essentials unity, and non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. Here's a little diagram that you'll see on your outline, you also see up on the screen, that kind of pictures this, gives you an image of what this might look like. On the outside, you have your preferences, then you have your non-essentials, and then you have your essentials. And we have these things, though, that are essentials, which I'll talk about in just a moment, that would bind us all together. Then in the non-essentials, we say there's liberty, differences of opinion on these non-essentials. And then guess what? There's these other things called just my little opinions, just my little preferences, And it's amazing how often the church can even get divided around my little opinions, my little preferences. And what we want instead is to say, in all of these things, love. In all these things, the cross of Christ is above them and over them. Charity reigns over the essentials, the non-essentials, and our preferences as well. Now, given all that, we need to define what are a few essentials of the faith that actually give us unity. I wanna give you four, really quick, that have united Christ followers across the ages. One of them, of course, is the Trinity that I've already referred to. The idea that there's one God and three persons, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. One God, three persons, eternally united, eternally distinct. A second one is salvation comes to us by grace, Through faith in Christ alone. Amen? We all agree on that. Those who are followers of Christ across the centuries, that's been a point of agreement. A third one is, the Bible is my authority. Not any other book, not my opinion, not my news station. The Bible is my authority. And the fourth one is this, the great commandment and the great commission. We commit ourselves across the centuries, Christians have all agreed on this, we commit ourselves on these two, to love God with all we got, to love our neighbors as ourselves, And then to pursue the Great Commission, to spread the good news of Jesus wherever we might go. Now, a little bit of church history, will help us on this, and how this has been interrupted, unfortunately, over the centuries. New denominations would form across the centuries over what are called secondary or non-essential theological differences. So you go back 60 or 70 years or so, there are many new denominations that would form over differing views on baptism. So, for example, if one person said, You know, I think just to have water poured on my head, that would, be su- that would be sufficient. To which the other person says, I now view your Christianity as suspect. And you can go start another denomination. And that's happened. Or I believe that uh, Jesus is going to return before the tribulation. Or I believe Jesus is going to return after the tribulation. Well, I now view your Christianity as suspect. Or vice versa. And then new movements, new denominations, what would form over those things. And that seems kind of silly to us. We haven't done that kind of thing, fortunately, over the past 20 or 30 years. You don't hear about that too much. But that caused a great deal of division in the church over the centuries. We don't do as much of that today. It seems kind of silly to us. But I don't think we can pat ourselves on the back. Because it doesn't seem to me that the church is any more united today than it was in previous generations. In fact, it seems to me that when I first got into ministry almost 20 years ago, while the church sometimes would get divided on secondary theological issues, today what I notice is the church getting divided on political issues instead. As opposed to getting divided on secondary theological issues, today people will oftentimes skip from one church to another church over how their pastor handled COVID-19. I've heard of life groups, not at this church, Todd, but I've heard of life groups that have chosen to split because of differing opinions on masks. Ugh. I've heard of people who have more or less not felt welcome in their life groups because they weren't politically conservative enough. And so they went out and got into another life group. Like, these things should grieve us when we hear these things because these are all secondary items on which biblical, believing, conservative Christians can disagree agreeably. Let me share just a number of different secondary issues that Christians have oftentimes divided from one another on that they don't need to. We all could say, okay, we are great commandment, great commission Christians. We believe in the authority of the Bible over everything. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and the only way to salvation is in Him. And we can disagree agreeably amongst Christians on questions like how does God's sovereignty and human free will intersect? Or does God dispense of the gifts of tongues and prophecies still today? And if so, how are they used? Is the earth old or young? Is communion the spiritual presence of Christ or simply a remembrance of Christ? Do I need to do sprinkling, pouring, or dunking? What's the best Bible translation? What about music worship style? How about political party? How about philosophy on creation stewardship? How about philosophy on taxation and welfare? How about all things COVID? Amen? Amen. All secondary items, all non-essential items on which the body of Christ should be able to disagree in love. But you know, when Christians choose to die on those mole hills, then the church just starts to look just like the evening noose. I love the way poet and author Jackie Hill Perry put it. She says, I have no desire to die on hills that look nothing like Calvary. Mm. I have no desire to die on any hills that look nothing like Calvary. I just think of Jesus' disciples. They actually embodied this. Jesus' disciples was a ragtag group of 12 men who joined together with Him, and they actually shared life. They did a a real life group. They shared life for three years. Over three years together, they shared everything. And His ragtag group of disciples include a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector, another man named Simon, who was a zealot. See a couple photographs of them. Those are not the real photographs of them, okay? (laughs) We don't have those photos, but we do have a couple photographs from the mini miniseries The Chosen. Maybe if you've watched The Chosen, you remember these two guys. They would have been on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Like Bernie Sanders and Sean Hannity wouldn't even come close. Seriously, they wouldn't. Zealots hated tax collectors with the most zealous hatred. You see, zealots were particularly hateful toward Rome because the Romans would put their thumb over Israel across many generations. And so zealots were these well-trained military men who looked for opportunities that God might provi- provide to overtake the Roman government. But there was one group of people the zealots hated even more than the Roman government. You know who it was? It was tax collectors. Because tax collectors, well were known to had their own pockets with the taxes from their fellow Jews. Not only would they tax their fellow Jews, and they are employed by the Roman government, but they also padded their own pockets with those taxes. They got rich over their fellow countrymen. And some zealots were known to organize assassinations of tax collectors. And Jesus brings these two together in his immediate 12. Fireside chat, Anyone? Like, how's that going to go? He made it work. Because they learned to be united on something bigger. And no doubt, the teachings in the life of Jesus kind of smoothed over the rough edges of both Simon and of Matthew, such that Matthew no longer cheated people, and Simon no longer killed people. Okay? Smoothed over those rough edges. But I'm sure they still had vast differences Huge differences in family of origin, huge differences in philosophy of government, and they were together across three years. I would imagine they talked about those differences, but isn't it interesting that across the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you do not read a single word about conflict between Matthew and Simon. There's nothing. It doesn't even come up. Why? Because they learned there was something bigger than their worldly kingdoms. They learned that what was bigger was being unified for the kingdom of God and spreading the good message of God, irrespective of their differences. Jesus centered their fellowship on something bigger. Here are a couple more modern examples. 20 years ago, I was welcomed into an inner-city church in Mobile, Alabama, where I was working at the time. This is my second career. My first career was as a speech therapist, and I was in an inner-city neighborhood, and I said, I need to go to church in the neighborhood where I'm living. And the church that I found, wonderful church, was called Lily Baptist Church, and I was the only lily-colored person there. (laughs) And as I entered into these doors... They warmly embraced me in spite of my pale skin color. They didn't care. And guess what? Neither did I. And they were, get ready, they were mostly Democrats. And I wasn't. And I'm not. And they didn't care. And neither did I. Because we were united on things that were bigger. We're united on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're united on making a difference there in inner city Mobile. And we're united on the fact that God wants to save people all around us. And we're united on the fact that the Bible is our authority. And all of these things brought us together over and against our secondary differences. Or to cite another example, I have wonderful fellowship here in town with a number of Pentecostal pastors. Pentecostal pastors. Okay, over at New Life Assembly and Grace Fellowship and Spirit of Life, great pastors over there, and I have wonderful fellowship with them. We disagree on some theological issues, okay? They have a different view on some of the charismatic spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy than I do, and I think it's probably okay that we have separate churches because that disagreement affects the teaching and the organization and the worship of a church, but even though we might have different churches, they are still my brothers in Christ. And I am so grateful to go arm in arm with those men as we, ta- as we seek the very same mission field of Kearney, Nebraska, and Central Nebraska. I mean, we're, we're all about the same thing, even as we recognize on some non-essentials, we have some disagreements, and that is okay. Oh, let me just bring this home here. If, if, you, if you commit yourself to pursuing unity, there are some people who will protest your pursuit of unity saying you're soft on truth. And I would just say, can't you be really strong on truth and really strong on unity at the same time? You can. Jesus was. Jesus prayed for it. Other people will attack it and they'll say, well, you know, back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that he would bring division between family members that a mother would be set against her son. And he did. But he wasn't prescribing that, telling you to go out and be divisive. He was simply describing. He was describing what sometimes happens, even in a family, even in our most valued relationships, when one person says, I am all in for Jesus. 100% for Jesus. And then other people sometimes say, "Ah, you need to stop being such a fanatic. And that can happen inside one's family over the anvil of the gospel, which can create a chasm. But he wasn't prescribing it. He was simply describing what can sometimes happen. And anytime there might be division, anytime there might be offense, Like, it should come because of the gospel, not because I'm a jerk, right? Like, it's not an offensive personality or an offensive style or an argumentative style that Jesus would invite us to. No, he would invite us to love people well, to sacrifice for people, to be humble for people. It's never the sharp edges of my elbows, that divide one person from another, it's the sharp edges of the gospel. When one person commits themselves to the unity of the essentials, another person says, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And sometimes that will cause a division, even in our most important relationships. But it's not because you're arguing people. It's not because you're offending people. Like, I've never offended someone into the kingdom of God. Have you? Have you? It just doesn't happen. But what we can do is this. You can point people to the truthfulness and the reliability of the gospel accounts. You can point people to the truthfulness of Christ and the veracity of the resurrection. And then what you can do is point them to a church that's actually unified amidst its diversity. And then you can point people to genuine Christian love because the world will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. And friends, our divided culture is so desperately in need of a united church. And a united church requires all of us. It's too big for any one of us, right? The problems that we see in our culture today, the problems we see in the church today, the problems we see amongst Christians today, dividing over secondary stuff, what we're talking about out of John 17 is way too big for a few of us in this church, it requires all of us together. So as I wrap up here, I want to just ask you a few questions that maybe will prime the pump for next steps for, for you. A handful of questions that you could consider as you seek to glorify God as you pursue unity amidst our diversity. Uh, now, n- n- number, one, number one might be this. Hey, quick, quick second. Some of you don't know me. I'm a person who stutters, and today it's getting me. Okay, so I'm just a passionate person, and when I get really passionate, every once in a while I stutter. Please forgive me for that. It's charming, Thank you, brother. <laughs> Appreciate you, man, love you. Okay, here's a handful of questions, some, of, some, some items for, all for us to consider as we pursue unity across our diversity. Perhaps it would be worth memorizing this beautiful statement, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. What if you as a family chose to memorize that What if you as a family chose to put that in your family room? Would that make a difference in your family, in the arguments in your family? In essentials, unity. In non-essential, liberty. In all things, love. In all things, charity. Number two, you could admit where you've allowed secondary things to become primary things and then simply ask God's forgiveness on that. There's been many times in my Christian journey that I've allowed secondary things to become primary things And the only response to that is that I repent to God. That I ask God's forgiveness for the ways that I've done that and divided with brothers or sisters in Christ. Number three, when it comes to cultural or political or theological or racial differences, please be quick to listen. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. We have more unity than we realize. And it occurs frequently as we seek to understand one another as opposed to only being understood. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. And if you practice that one proverb, be quick to listen rather than than quick to speak, then you'll get an audience with people to be able to share what you have to say. Here's another question to ask. Do I honestly have more fellowship with people who share my political convictions but disagree with me spiritually than I have with people who agree with me spiritually but disagree with me politically. And if I do, that's a problem because the spiritual is the essential. The political is the non essential And lastly, is there any brother or sister in Christ that I am divided from over non-essential issues? How will I make peace with that person for the glory of God? We bring this down to an individual level. How will I make peace with that person that I'm divided from on a secondary non-essential issue for God's glory? Jesus prays that we might all be one as he is one. In fact, he begs his Father in heaven for this. He pleads for it three times. And we pursue this, not because it's politically correct, we pursue it because it's biblically correct. Amen? We pursue it because it's biblically correct. And we pray for this, not because it's nice, we pray for it because Jesus says it's necessary. And so Father, we bow before you. And we ask you, in the mighty name of Jesus, would you do what only you can do? We look over the landscape of the church and the world today, and if we're honest, we just must admit that it's not what you prayed for. Oh Lord Jesus, we, we see the division in the church all across America and all across the world, and we imagine that it must grieve your heart because it's so far from what you desire. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us these prayers that we could know how we would glorify you more. And so we're asking you, God, would you please give us courage to go after it? What is it for you? What did you hear today in that final list of questions that you'd say, yeah, that's something I need to go after a little bit more? I need to be courageous in pursuing unity across our diversity. What is it for you? Maybe there's someone that you need to get right with. Listen to God, receive that. Maybe you need to grow in your capacity to listen to those who are different. Agree with God and receive that. Oh Father, I pray for our church that we would actually be one that we would be unified in the essentials of our faith, that we would be unified in our love for one another, and that the world around us might know that Jesus Christ is Lord by the way that we are united with one another. We'll be careful to give you all glory. All credit goes to you, the only wise God in whose name we pray. Amen.